when I finally broke through and experienced joy again, I'll never forget. I was riding my bike late at night, nobody was around, and I was bawling tears of joy because it had been since I was a young child that I had actually allowed myself the freedom to open up to joy, to open up to the idea that you can feel great. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories, one story at a time, in a world of mental health, together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, and thank you for joining me here again on Hope to Recharge podcast. We are in the month of September. We are all about talking about suicide awareness, how to prevent suicide, how to support someone that's going through um, suicide thoughts, suicide attempts. How do we even bring up these conversations with children? How do we bring awareness to the world? How do we support a loved one that might be struggling with suicide attempts and suicide ideations? So we devoted September to talk about breaking the stigma on suicide and bringing more awareness. How to support, what are we supposed to do? Last two conversations, last two episodes were really amazing episodes. Really, really, really amazing episodes. The feedback was outrageous. It just shows how much we need to talk about it more. How many people are still afraid to talk about it? How many people are afraid to reach out? How many people are willing, are afraid to even come to terms with it with themselves? Such an important conversation. And we devoted this month, which is September Suicide Awareness Month, we devoted it on Hope to Recharge to talk about suicide awareness. This conversation was fascinating to me, really fascinating to me, and I want to share it with you all. Adam will share his journey with suicide's thoughts, attempts, and what is he doing now to make meaning out of his life and to move forward and to try to live a meaningful life, a powerful life, and to serve others. Without further ado, Adam Moen. Hello, and thank you for joining me here today. Today, I have somebody that reached out to me through the platform of Hope to Recharge, and he wanted to share his story, his journey, a mental illness, mental health awareness, suicide awareness. And I was really excited to have him on the show. And I'm very grateful for his story because it takes a lot of courage to share these stories of suicide thoughts, suicide awareness, suicide attempts. It's a very important topic, really important topic. Adam Moen, thank you for joining me here today. Where are you talking from right now? I'm coming from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota. Mm -hmm. In the United States. Yeah, in the United States. I remember when I went to check out Minnesota for a factory that I was going to work with, and I was told that it has the largest mall, right? The largest mall. 
Yes, that used to be the case. I do believe there is a larger one that has been built somewhere else, but that was one of our claims to fame. And also that we have more shoreline than California, just from all of the lakes and access to water. So I remember it was, it felt like such a small town America, but then you get to this ginormous mall and I had a panic attack. I remember being in the Uber and I was like, should I do this? Should I not do this? How can I do it? There was one kosher restaurant. I eat kosher and it was one kosher restaurant in the mall. And I'm like, okay, can I do this? Because big noisy places get me very overwhelmed. I don't like any shopping centers. I don't like, like any shopping period, but a big mall just overwhelms me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it was actually really surprisingly nice after I entered the mall. And yeah, that that's my memory mm-hmm. <laughs> of that place. So mm-hmm. thank you for joining me here today. I want to give the audience a little bit of a background. You have a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you have maybe two, right? Do you have two TED yes, Talks? Yes, I do. Let's share the with the audience your two different TED Talks and what made you decide to choose those topics for your TED Talk and what led you to that? Yeah, I'll start with the most recent one because this idea is a little bit more fresh in my mind and it's about this concept of permanence. We oftentimes describe ourselves in phrases of permanence such as I am, mm-hmm. you know, I am sad, I am happy, I am this or that and I think that can be limiting, and this is particular to English, of course, I'm not right. a linguist, but the talk is is called the, I believe it's the, I can bring it up quickly here, but imagine a world without I am, because I think that the idea of like emotional permanence, like I'm always going to feel this way. I hear it a lot in mental health. I am depressed. I have anxiety. I have depression. I am schizophrenic. I don't think it's a very empowering way to look at you as a human being because it almost implies that if you say, I am depressed, depression encompasses the entirety of my being. I am depressed. I fit within the definition of depression. And I just don't think that's a very empowering way to live. So I've been advocating for people in my circles and in my peer support groups to use non-permanent phrases like I feel depressed or I feel sad, just as a way of allowing yourself the flexibility to move out of these states as opposed to needing to wrap your identity up in them. So that was the that was the most recent one. And then the more popular one, which was my original one, is called Choices, Suicide, and Apple Cores. And that one is really about my own experience with suicidality. It's about my early 20s when I was very lonely and I was quite star I was living alone I was quite starved for positive social interaction it was during university and I I found myself reaching out for real human connection in ways that were moderately absurd and I just noticed myself um doing this because of my sadness. I, I got a thrill out of like doing something that was sort of nonconformist as a way to reach out and try and connect with people because I felt so bad about myself that I had difficulty like thinking that anybody would ever want to interact with me for any reason at all. 
Mm-hmm. So I tell this story about how I'm on a bus and I, I decide to eat the whole apple core and I get this like thrill because it's like non socially conforming because people would look at me funny or whatever. And it was just very exemplary of how lonely I was and how sad I was for me to you know be seeking attention because I wasn't getting the type of positive social outlet in my personal life. So that was a representation of being in a very dark place and not being equipped with the tools to make it out of that place. And Mm -hmm. so I spent a long time, you know, kind of in this limbo area where I wasn't asking for help. And it was, uh, it was very challenging. And I almost ended up, you know, committing suicide. And I tell the story of me being on the bridge and kind of what was going through my mind. So I really felt it's important to share my perspective because not a lot of people talk about suicidality or suicide. And in my home state of Minnesota, 18% of high school students have seriously considered suicide. So when you think about almost one in five people in my immediate community have seriously considered suicide, it's really quite common and not something we should be afraid about talking about because I think it speaks to larger things that are going on in our lives. And I wanted to kind of provide that forum to break the glass around the subject. I want to go back to the I am for a second before we go into the whole topic of suicide awareness and breaking the stigma and what really leads somebody to suicide. So the I am, I I always struggle with this question of diagnosis When we get diagnosed as something, so we automatically put on a label, which the label can help us understand what we are going through, and it can help us research ways to heal from it. But at the same time, our mind does a trick on us saying, oh, I am X, Y, and Z. And then we go into this place of self-fulfilled prophecy. And many times I wonder if there were no specific names to certain diagnoses like depression, uh, anxiety, or big ones, bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever it is, you know, like if it wasn't with a label, would the healing be easier in a way for long term? This way, we're detaching ourselves from what I am, like you said. That's something that I've struggled with a ton too. First of all, Mental health is a very recent field. We're talking about 60, 70 years of modern psychology becoming a discussed medical kind of practice, which is different than physical medicine, which has been around for hundreds, thousands of years. So this idea of the mind is is rather fresh. And there's a lot of, I guess, disagreement in the field about the underlying pathophysiology associated with mental health complications. I mean, just recently, there's still papers that are refuting the SSRI and serotonin, lack of serotonin levels as a contribution to depression, which is one of the foundations of an entire class of medication. So there's just a lot of like unknowns in mental health, first of all, which I think is one of the reasons that this identity issue becomes more prevalent because one of the things that people do is instead of really focusing on the treatment, which is the purpose for a diagnosis, for a diagnosis, you're you're 
okay, if you're depressed, you know, we're labeling a certain set of condition or of behaviors or of patterns or whatever you want to call it, so that we can introduce a treatment plan that is effective. Right. And too often in mental health, and even in most medicine, I would say in physical medicine, this happens a lot too, but we identify with that diagnosis as a part of who we are, as opposed to it use it being used to drive a treatment plan, which is intended to help us, you know, feel better, cope better, excel, you know, be successful, whatever you want to do in life. And then the mental health industry propagates this because it's like, you know, hey, depression support groups come if you are depressed. And it's a very challenging thing to get over because at the same time, we're trying to break stigma. How do we then use these diagnoses or these, you know, these observable traits or these similarities between people as ways to bring people together, but then not be limiting. And I don't think mental health as an industry overall has figured that out. And that's why you've got kind of like mental health diagnoses on one side and you've got like the wellness industry on the other. And I know there's tons of intersection and, and there's a lot of great ways that people are trying to move forward. But as a whole, I think that there's just tons of work to be done in terms of more holistic approaches to diagnosis, treatment, and the incorporation of that diagnosis in who you are as a human being, as opposed to it being a limiting factor. Yeah. I have a hard time with it, not because I believe in understanding and accepting what we're going through. I believe that knowing is power. I believe that when we have information, we can move forward. But I also believe that when we get, when you say I am versus I am struggling with, I am dealing with, it's not who I am. It's not who, this is not my identity. This is what I am. This is the phase I'm walking through now and maybe forever, but it's going to change. It's definitely going to change shapes and sizes and colors and themes. It's definitely because that's what happens. So when we remove the I am versus I'm, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm experiencing, I am is my name. I can also say I am, I can identify myself with male, female, like I can identify with that. I, I am a mom. Yes. I'm always going to be a mom. Once I gave birth, I'm always going to be a mom. I'm always a daughter of someone. That's what I am. But am I mentally ill? I am mentally ill. I wouldn't say that. I struggle with mental illness. It comes and goes, but I don't want it to define me because then it's so limiting and one of the conversations I have a lot, and this is very controversial, and it could be that it's going to trigger people here. It could be, but it's just because I have this big passion of the power of our brain and the power of change and the power, the willpower behind our desire to be something bigger. I have a big issue with, again, I don't know a lot about it. But in my very limited knowledge, and I'm going to say very limited knowledge, I have a big problem with addiction that say, I am an addict. Like, you're not an addict. You have an addiction problem. You've been addicted for a while. But if you're going to go to meetings and keep on saying that you're an addict, your brain is going to believe you're an addict. Mm -hmm. And I have such a hard time. And there is no one that agrees with me, by the way. There is no one that agrees with me. They're like, you don't understand an addict's brain. Once an addict, always an addict. They're born with a certain brain. But I believe if we 
believe that we can change to our core of our brain? Why can we also change? Even if we were born a certain way, why can't we change certain parts of our brain that is telling us certain things that we are, that we're not? But the second we keep on saying it, it's really hard to break away. Yes, we can get tools. Yes, when we have awareness, absolutely. When we have awareness, it's a huge thing and we're more careful. But the more we say, I am something, it just believes it and it's really hard to move out of it versus there is the coping versus leaving it and believing that we can leave that state of where we are now. Can you tell how passionate I am about this? <laughs> I can. And it's, it is a controversial idea. And I tend to be on your side, actually, because the research about neuroplasticity that is coming out is just absolutely fantastic. One person who's doing, who's on the cutting edge of addiction research in neuroplasticity is Murat Yersel. He runs something called Brain Park in Melbourne, Australia. I wanted to and say my the other, sorry for interrupting. I wanted to say from Australia because Australian, I had uh, a friend of mine is uh neuroscientist and she's doing neuroplasticity in Australia and they're really breaking through what no one broke through in here in, in America. Yep. And so they're making tons of progress in addiction. So I'll let them speak on the neuroplasticity side of addiction. But yeah, my challenge with the, the I am an addict issue becomes when it's limiting. If for somebody they say to themselves that I am an addict and because I say that, I go to meetings every week and I no longer abuse and, you know, whatever, whatever. That's totally fine with me because in the long run, there's some sort of gain that that person experiences from that. So who am I to say, you know, that's not better than them being able to get over the fact that maybe they aren't an addict anymore because perhaps they exhibit less addict-like behavior. I don't know. But I agree with you that I think it can be a trap. And, and I think that phrase is what prevents a lot of people from seeking addiction support because the barrier between admitting to yourself that I have a problem and I am an addict becomes so much higher because this your entirety of your identity all of a sudden needs to be conformed around the idea that you're an addict, which... Yeah. I don't think is very accessible and language matters so much with what we tell ourselves. And so, you know, that's, and for me, the I am thing comes back to accessibility. I am depressed is a higher barrier mentally for me to jump over than I feel symptoms of depression or I feel sad, right. you know, that, it's so much easier to access. So that's why when I, when I notice these things about what people speak, they speak the way that they think. So we could use more empowering terms in our minds and in our language to make mental health more accessible to people. I can't agree more. And I, I, I want to make sure that people understand I am all pro meetings, AA meetings and, and addiction meetings. And I think they save lives and they save families. I just would love for it to be a not full life thing, like that there's no hope, there's no change. Once an addict, always an addict. That, I just wish there would be a little bit more hope of like, we can change, we can really change. There's a power to our mind. 
And yes, it could be we were born with something, but we have the power. And if we tell ourselves all the time the same story, we're going to believe it. And the way I always ask addicts, like, where's your hope? If you'll never be able to have a sip of whatever it is, I don't know, if, of wine again, where's that hope that maybe one day you will, maybe in 50 years and maybe never, but maybe that maybe is what keeps people going. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm completely wrong. And maybe that radical acceptance of I will never be able to, you know, just like uh, a woman that decides that she's not going to have children anymore and she does an unrepairable surgery, she will never be able to bear children anymore. And it's a, an acceptance. Done. Yeah. And that's, again, where I think that phrase of the permanence offers people value who want that certainty and are really looking for that certainty. Um, where I struggle is same, same as you. I don't think that pigeonhole in terms of needing that certainty is for everybody. It's not an accessible message to say, you know, to do this, you have to admit that you're an addict and you're going to be an addict for the rest of your life. That's really attractive for some folks. And I'm going to, you know, keep doing that, but that's not the only way, you know, like I said, there's research coming out. So I, I mean, I, it is a very controversial very. Uh, subject, and so you know I'm I'm treading lightly here. Which Matana, you're you're a little more <laughs> bold than I on the subject, so I no, have I, a lot of respect I, for I, that. And I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know, and it could be I'm very naive, and it could be that I have no clue what I'm talking about. But I do know that neuroplasticity does work. I do know that it works for people that couldn't get out of bed, that were that were diagnosed with the worst things. And now they're okay because they used neuroplasticity. So why don't we use the same treatment or the same methodology to addiction and to anything else? Like just because we were diagnosed with one thing doesn't mean it's forever. But at the same time, it could be also dangerous maybe to say, I might not be that because it could be a slippery slope to back to where they are. So I, so we'll just end by saying, we hope we're going to find a way that somebody can lead because we, I do believe that words have power. What we tell ourselves is so fundamental in our recovery. It is so crucial, the stories we tell ourselves. And are we in, in the victim state of like, this is who I am and I'll just, or are we in empowerment? This is what I'm dealing with, but I'm going to move forward. I'm going to try. Totally. And this is, a great segue to talking about what I did in order to get out of my depression. So I don't know if you want to go there right yes, now. Yes, I do. I do. Okay. Because so when I was feeling at my absolute worst, I had a very pivotal conversation with somebody in my life who is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. And he's just a very hard hitting guy. He was a boxer he was a kind of a, he was a lone sharking guy for the mob back in New York. And then he got sober and went into mental health. And so he's, you know, he doesn't pull punches. He's a very rough nose guy. And that was exactly what I needed in order for somebody to break through kind of all of the emotional walls that I had put up in front of everybody else. And mm -hmm. we're sitting outside at a cafe. And at this point, I'm, you know, very much actively considering suicide regularly and just feel horrible about who I am and what I'm experiencing. And he keeps on pushing me and keeps on pushing me. Why do you feel that way? 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 And ultimately what I got to is 
I just, I, I, you know, I, I, I broke down into tears in, in, in this middle of this cafe. And I finally just was like, you know, I just, I just feel like I'm a piece of shit. And he just looked at me and he said, Adam, you're not a piece of shit. And you need to tell yourself that every single day, 100, 1000, 10,000 times a day, every single time you put your left foot down, every single time you put your right foot down, you need to repeat that in your head. And I did. I literally, I walked away from that and I just started like walking to class. And instead of walking to class and having repeating thoughts of self-loathing, right? You know, I'm horrible. I should have done better. I don't like myself, whatever. I literally just started to say, I'm not a piece of shit. I'm not a piece of shit. I'm not a piece of shit. I forgive my language, but this is what I needed to do. And eventually after several weeks, maybe a month of just repeating this phrase in my head, I finally got to like, Hey, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm really not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. And then it kind of was like, Hey, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually an okay person. And so I'm a huge proponent of redefining that internal monologue. And it was so pedestrian and simple, the answer for me in terms of rewriting those pathways from just telling myself that I'm a bad person because that's the message that I receive, you know, from everywhere around me. And that's a whole different discussion about like, in your environment and how that influences your, your mental and emotional state. But I was carrying that with me and I had to rewrite my own inner dialogue. And one thing about some of the latest suicide thought research is that the brain is constantly searching for solutions to things. So if you're in that state where let's say 49% of your day is negative and 51% of your day is positive in terms of just the mental thoughts, the environment that you're in is, you know, if 50% of your day is negative and 50% of your day is positive, just now you're at this sort of level state, you know, cause you all know those people who are always positive and who knows what that, if that's real or not, but I'm just talking about how you feel overall. And then once that scale tips to like, okay, 51% of my day is negative and 49% of my waking cognizant time just feels, you know, positive. Then all of a sudden you get to, you know, 70% of my day is negative and only 30% is positive and 80% is negative and only 20% is positive. Then all of a sudden, what the brain starts doing is going, I cannot reverse this trend. I've been working so hard at trying to reverse this trend, and I just am powerless. And that is exactly what happened to me. It was a slow slip into suicidality from like this depressed state of just my life was just getting worse. Every day felt worse than the previous one. And all of a sudden, I was at a point where you know, I'm 95% of my day is negative and only 5% actually gives me any joy. So now my brain starts going, well, clearly we've used every tool at our disposal. We can't figure this out. Have you considered just killing yourself? Because that would be a stop to it. And 
that's what I did. So I just started entertaining the idea of suicide as like a potential avenue. And at first it really scared me. I was like, oh, I just thought about killing myself. That's really scary. But then over time, I grew more comfortable with that idea. So then all of a sudden I'm still in this super negative state. And then my brain is firing and being like, well, have you thought about suicide? Well, have you thought about suicide? Well, have you thought about suicide? And then all of a sudden I get desensitized to the issue. So now I'm like, okay, you know, maybe suicide is an actual answer because I've tried everything else. You know, at this point, I hadn't reached out for professional support. Actually, I did and I was denied, which is a whole nother issue, but I had exhausted all the tools in my toolkit. And so I'm getting more and more comfortable with this idea of suicide because like, I don't have anything left in the toolbox to get over this with. So then I'm comfortable with the idea of suicide to the point where I'm like, okay, well, let's start making a plan. And it was at that point when I started making a plan and I like started getting in the process of like, this is how I'll do it. You know, that's, that's actually when somebody intervened in my life and I got help. And I'm very grateful that that occurred because so many people don't have that type of experience and don't get the help they need and they get more comfortable with the idea. And, you know, that's just, that's just how it worked for me. Like that's, that was the thought progression that I went from being extremely sad to suicide being a legitimate solution to my problem. And I had to rewire my brain and it started with cognitive behavioral therapy and it started with just talking. And then I got into mental health advocacy and then I met this guy, he started, you know, we worked on kind of rewiring my thought patterns. I got into mindfulness. I became more of a author of my internal dialogue as opposed to just like a receiver. Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with brain development. A lot of it has to do with, you know, I, I made, I accomplished things in my life that I wanted to do. Um, but I was able to kind of get out of that passenger side of my brain and then into more of like the driver's seat. How old were you at this time? I was uh, I was twenty. My worst years were definitely twenty to twenty one. Twenty two to twenty five was when I was like getting very aggressively working at building the skills around how to not be feeling horrible about myself, and and the feelings started in high school, but I didn't really understand them quite yet. It wasn't. So, I mean, I felt very propped up by my educational experience, my family environment, my social environment. It, was, it wasn't until my, my university. So 18, 19, 20, 21, where things really got challenging for me. And then, you know, it, it took me three, four, five years to build these tools in terms of practices to be a more active participant in my experience as a human being to get out of it. And that being said, that doesn't mean I never contemplate suicide today. Like sometimes the thought still creeps back into my mind, but it's not crushing like it used to be. It's not every day. It's not something that I'm as afraid of. I still am afraid of it, but I'm not entertaining it like I used to be. I'm not making a plan. It's not as much of a burden on my life. And I think that's largely because of the the support I've received and the decisions that I've made to try and get out of it. It was just a very challenging experience, but it really opened my eyes to an entire different way of living that I had never knew existed. Uh, I became so much more empathetic. I got involved with mental health advocacy 
you know, I would never be here today sharing my story if I hadn't had that. And turning the corner, and this is something that I, it's always so hard when, so I've led peer support groups, you know, I do peer support stuff online. It's always so hard to tell somebody in the middle of a depressive or suicide or panic attack episode that, hey, you know, someday with the right help and support, you're going to look back at this moment and you're going to be so happy that you went through it because of what you learned about yourself. Yes. I mean, that's like when you say that to somebody who's like thinking about killing themselves, it's ridiculous because they're just like, oh no, never, you know, but it's so true. It's yes. so true. If you get the right support around you and, and you can, what I call turn the corner on that suffering in terms of changing your relationship to it and realizing that it's not necessarily your Achilles heel. It could actually be a door for you to go through in order to become a more full human being in the world. And so I think the really skilled mental health professionals in the world can kind of like help us redesign our relationship to yeah. um, our own suffering. And that, that was just so pivotal in me being able to not resent the fact that suicidality happened to me, depression happened to me, right? You know, and get out of that victim mentality, like you said. Living with mental illness can be full of pain, frustration, and anguish. At times, it can feel like you are completely alone. Well-meaning loved ones may not understand what you are going through and might not be able to offer the support you need. Finding the right source of support is crucial to your journey of healing. While we always encourage you to seek appropriate medical and psychological help, Adding someone to your team who has been where you are can provide a much-needed shoulder to lean on. Matana knows what it is like to feel debilitating anxiety, and through her own journey of more than a decade living with mental illness, she has spoken with hundreds of others navigating their own anxiety and depression. Matana is not a therapist or a doctor, but has been able to partner with many individuals like yourself, creating a strategy toward mental, physical, and emotional well-being. One-on-ones with Matana are self-paced conversations allowing you to move forward at a comfortable pace. She'll work with you as you discover your own path and the steps that are right for you. To schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Matana, head over to hopetorecharge.com forward slash free. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash F-R-E-E. Or you can click the link in today's show notes. And now let's get right back to Matana and today's conversation. I want to touch upon so many points that you spoke about. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, first of all, the mentor that you speak about that says, change the story in your mind, change the story because the story that we tell ourselves is what leads us, like we said before. And you're lucky that you had him and you're lucky that you were willing to take tough love because most people at that state are like, leave me alone. I want empathy and compassion. I don't want tough love now. And Anne Moss was is someone that I had on the show twice. Her son died from suicide and she's a huge, huge, huge advocate for suicide awareness, especially in teens, especially, especially in teens. He was battling addictions and he, he just couldn't, he couldn't get over it. And one of the things that she taught me and what, and it touches upon what you said that when you started your plan, that's when the person came into your life. And I don't think it's random. I think it was by design. And this is an important thing that I want to share with the audience that she taught me this, that 
when someone comes and this is somebody, this is what we need to learn as people that are supporting others. Don't tell the person that is planning a sweat, oh, you're, oh, for, oh, you're not going to kill yourself. Oh, uh, let's do something happy. Or uh, like, don't distract them because if they're sharing with you, that means they are begging for help. If somebody is coming and sharing even a random by not even clearer, like spread, uh, like spelled out, I am attempting suicide. This is how I'm doing it. If the conversation is coming up, she's saying he, the person is begging for help and a way out. And they don't even know that they're doing it, but their body is saying, I'm so afraid of suicide, but I'm so close to doing it. I'm going to share it with somebody. So please give me hope. And one of the things that she taught me was someone shares what you're supposed to say is tell me more, tell me more. Keep on drawing them into the conversation. And as you said, but why? But why? The seventh, you know, the seventh truth method that you go seven questions in, like, but the why, why, why? Eventually you're going to get there. Tell me more. And she also said that there's a certain period of time where the brain is having like a spasm and saying, and that's when there's no control, there's no mind over matter, and the brain just goes into reaction. If we can stay in conversation with the person that is a thinking, suicide in that whatever it is 10 20 minutes they can overcome it and then it passes that little spasm in the brain passes and we don't know when it's going to come again but that's when they reach out for help usually it's that moment and we have to catch it so it's so important as uh, the suicide awareness like listen to what people are telling you don't mock don't belittle it and keep on saying, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And what your, your mentor did was rewiring your brain, really rewiring. Now I want to touch upon something else that someone taught us on this podcast. And she, she was referring to falling in love with ourselves and people that don't like themselves usually think uh, get depressed and then they think suicide and it's really hard to change that conversation like your mentor said tell yourself a hundred times a day so if you tell yourself a hundred times a day i love you I, I i you're awesome the brain is if they're really in a bad spot they're gonna say no i'm not no i'm not no i'm not it's gonna be this this back and forth conversation with your brain she gave such a brilliant method of saying i want to love myself. I want to be happy. I want to leave this state of depression. I want to think positively. The want. It should start with the wish, desire, that the brain shouldn't fight back. No, you're not. I thought that was brilliant. What do you think as someone that did it a hundred or a thousand times a day? What do you think about that? I didn't know that I was going to fall in love with the word want until later on in my life, but that definitely is a huge tool just to admit to yourself or even sort of fake it till you make it like I want to feel a particular way, right? And what want says is it implies agency. It is saying, I want, you know, it's directional. Mm -hmm. I am is stagnant. Mm -hmm. And so when you say I want, it's a, you don't want to lie to yourself. So if you really say, I want that job or I want whatever, that's why, you know, it's, it's helpful to get in that action state as opposed to I am, which is just stagnant point in time, totally not empowering at all. So I, I completely agree with that. 
Yeah. So totally it, because a lot of times people are going to say, I'm not going to say that to myself because I'm going to fight it back. So start with a step back a little bit further, like a micro step of saying, I want to not think about suicide. I want to love myself. I want to care about myself. I want to live a long life. I want to live a happy life. Those little dreams and wants will lead us through walking forward into finding the ways to get there. But we have to recognize the want. Totally. And for those of you who may say to yourself, well, I don't want to live anymore, then I would go to the why, because the why is going to tell you what's wrong in your life that is a reason you don't want to live anymore. Maybe it's your family life, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's whatever. And that is the why gets you at the action so that you can learn more about, well, maybe there's something to address here that I actually have to get over, or it's going to be continuing to be an issue in my life. So I completely agree with that. And I didn't believe myself in the beginning when I would say, you know, I'm not a piece of trash. I was just faking it. I, I really was. But like, I was so broken down. I was so helpless. I was so ill-equipped that I needed to start at the, at the most simple, simple tools. Mm-hmm. And then something that really helped was I got into mindfulness meditation and gratitude like kind of exercises were really big on just kind of like creating space in my mind that was allowing me to experience non-negative emotions. And I, I remember in my early 20s, like when I finally broke through and experienced joy again, I'll never forget. I was riding my bike late at night. Nobody was around. And I was bawling tears of joy because it had been since I was a young child that I had actually allowed myself the freedom to open up to joy, to open up to the idea that you can feel great. And it honestly, it was like, it was childlike and it probably had been 10 years and once I broke through that, I mean, I opened to it. I allowed it to happen and it, became, it came rushing back. And those moments started to happen more frequently and more frequently. And that light is what I am so committed to trying to help people realize within themselves because I truly believe that this is not a unique experience to me. I truly believe that every human being on earth has the capability to do it. It does not mean that it is going to be as easy as your neighbor or like somebody else's journey, but I do not believe that there is something inherently impossible for a particular person to have that type of experience too. So I, you know, that's, that's what I'm committed to these days. I 100% agree. And I think Hal Ben-Shahar told me that Golda Meir said, those who weep with a full heart can sing or experience joy with a full heart. And I always say this to people, just like your sadness is to a degree that you cannot tolerate, joy can go just as high. It goes both ways. The red and the blue go both ways from empty to full. It goes both ways ways. So hold on, because one thing that I keep on telling people is 
The joy that you will experience after pain is a joy that you have never experienced before pain. It's just a level that you cannot access. And that's what you said before, that you'll be grateful. I am so grateful for the pain I went through. Do I want to go through it again? Never, ever, ever, ever. But will I have been where I am now? No. And I wouldn't have experienced, I would miss out so much on life. I wouldn't know that I would miss out because I wouldn't know to, to, to know what I know now. But we're just on a different level of what of experiencing of stuff of things, how we interact, our as you said, empathy, sympathy, understanding of humans. Just going through a simple act of life of drink, drinking a cup of coffee is different. I completely agree. And that is is an empowering message of mental health, which is so exciting for me. You know, I just hope that that message permeates the medical profession, permeates the, you know, the therapy sessions, permeates the group work, permeates people's hearts, because I don't think that's a, a muscle that we were working on building as young children, particularly of you know, this generation, we just, in the United States, there was not a lot of time spent on like emotional health and emotional kind of flexibility and, and strength and structure. So if people don't feel like they're at that point right now, it's never something to be ashamed of or to be worried of about because I had to build the skills. Mm-hmm. You had to build the skills. Absolutely. These aren't inherent things in our lives. So there's no shame in admitting that or reaching out or even talking about it. And talking about it is empowerment. You will realize so fast on. I'm talking to the audience, whoever's listening, and probably a lot of them are nodding their heads, right? That the more you share, the more you're going to feel loved and wanted and motivated to try harder and support. You're going to start finding support. Adam, did you find any shame with sharing your story early on about your suicide thoughts? I thought I was going to, but the first person I told was my best friend. And when I started talking to him, I was like, you know, I've just really been feeling down, et cetera, et cetera. He immediately said, oh my God, I've been feeling the exact same way. Exactly. And then I was kind of like, interesting. And then I went to tell another friend of mine, I was like, hey, you know, I just wanted you to know, you know, I've been really feeling bad lately. Haven't really known what to do about it, but um, you know, that's, that's where I've been at. And then he oh my God, I've been feeling the exact same way. And I started to see that there was this pattern and that's what really motivated me. I was like, okay, this isn't unique to me and there's something going on here. There's something more here. So then I kind of flipped into that, like that curious part of my brain where I was like, well, let's see what we can do about it because I'm starting to open my eyes to it. And now it's something that I'm interested in. Um, So I didn't feel a lot of shame for my friend group, my family, totally different story because there's so much more built up in terms of like expectations of performing as a child and, you know, who you are in the world. So like, I didn't feel shame from anyone, but I felt my own internal shame, which was hard to get over. But I, I, it was very much a part of the process until I was able to kind of like, I guess, let go. And it's still an active process for me. I'm not going to say it's something that I'm, that I don't ever experience again, but you know, it's, it's very much a part of the process of opening up and, and, and not a very fun one. Today's episode is sponsored by betterhelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? High stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything. 
have a lot of worries, had a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me, betterhelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody. Don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Start your wellness, get help, get support you need. Did your family support you once you opened up? 100%, completely fully. Yeah. Wow. However, so again, you were telling yourself stories and going deep into the pain because you were telling yourself stories. What if they don't accept me? What if they judge me? What if they think badly of me? It's not worth it. But the interesting thing is that they intellectually know they support me and fully supporting somebody with your heart in a non-judgmental way with yourself removed is very challenging. Yes. Which is why when I first told my dad, I said, Hey, you know, I think I might need to see somebody. He said, that's so great. I love you. And he's a a medical doctor. So, you know, has the training to deal with this. Mm -hmm. You're such a great kid. We love you so much. You're probably going through a phase, but we'll definitely get you the help that you need. And so I heard you're probably going through a phase, even though he said, we'll get you the help you need. Wow. So I kept on going. I kept on going. Wow. Even though I literally came to him and was like, I'm at my breaking point. Wow. Yeah. And what a lesson, right? What a lesson. But it was communication, communication. What we take out of a statement. We, We take what we want to hear. Wow. Well, but what he said to me years later was that the reason he said you're probably going through a phase, which it was indeed a phase, if you look at it like that, which I think is not really the right word to talk about, you know, mental health challenges, but mm-hmm. you call it a time period, whatever. He said the reason he said he was adverse to me reaching out for mental health support was because he thought it would mean that he wasn't a good enough father for me. Mm. So that was his fear around admitting that, hey, Adam may need some additional support. So it was not about me. It was about his own kind of like baggage of mental and emotional you know, challenges that he was carrying. And it's so hard to unravel ourselves from our family and from our friends when we start to go down this journey of reaching out for mental and emotional health support. And I want to highlight that for parents that are listening. We are going to do a whole segment on teenagers with mental illnesses or or mental struggles, depression, anxiety, suicide thoughts, attempts, uh, anything, right? Because it's just getting 
more and more and more and more and more as we move. The more we talk mental health, the problems are becoming bigger, but that's, but that's okay. That's the way things evolve. The, the thing is one of the, the big things that I'm hearing is that children go to their parents and their parents are going to, oh, you're okay. Yeah, you're going through, like what your father said, yeah, it, yeah, high school is hard. Yeah, social media is hard. Yeah, this is hard. Yes, it's all true, all hard, but my pain is real. What I'm going through is real. Don't minimize it. And sometimes the parents are so afraid to say, my child is struggling and not know what to do to heal, to help them heal, that they rather be in denial and not take the extra step to say, okay, you know what? Let's do this. Thank you for telling me. Thank you. So every parent that is listening, if a child, if you say, they don't even have to tell you, if you see something is off with your child, go have a conversation, empathetic conversation, try to get out of them. No judgmental um, conversation, very open, uh, open heart to understanding and say, what do you feel we could do to help you? Let's do this. No labeling again. Let's do this. Are you? If you're in pain, let's try to fix it and try not to run away from it because the more you run away from it, the faster it's going to come running after you because there's no way out if it's not dealt with, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So parents that are listening, don't do the mistake. I won't call it the mistake, but that the unknown mistake that Adam's father said, because he didn't want to look in the mirror and say, maybe I'm not the right. And it's not, by the way, it's not the parent's job to know how to fix it or to deal with it. Not at all. Not every parent knows how to. We don't go to school for this. Most, If you're a therapist, you might know. And even if you're a therapist, you might not know how to deal with your own child's difficulty because you have your own personal feeling of I'm a parent. I should know. Did I fail? Did I not show up? Did I not show enough love? Did I not see? Did I not, did I not do enough that you didn't have to go through this? And it's not a fault finger pointing thing. It's an action. Completely agree. And it's so hard to remove oneself from that equation, but so essential. Yeah. And it's so important. So if you're a parent, please take this to heart and there's no stigma. And nowadays we have so many platforms to help parents, to help children and, and take advantage before it's too late, before you hear about the suicide plan or find it in a notebook or find it on social media or find it in a little paper somewhere, do it before it's too late. Gift it to your child or to your friend, or to whoever it is. Give the, the ability to listen, to hear, to be empathetic. And, and sometimes people are afraid. They're like, oh my God, they're telling me about suicide. I don't know how to fix it. You're not supposed to fix it. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to fix it. All you have to do is say, tell me more, tell me more. How, what, what can I do to help you? Do you want to go f- for help? Always have the suicide hotline, a number to give out. Adam, I want to wrap up with a few tips that you can give people that are going through this time of darkness, of deep sadness, as you express, or loneliness, or confusion, whatever whatever state they are in that time, but they're starting to think suicide. Mm-hmm. What would you give them as advice to help them? So like I said, I experienced some challenges when talking to my support group about my own issues because of, you know, my father's difficulty with admitting his mistakes or whatever it was. And he was obviously, he's been been an amazing father figure through my entire life. I would never, ever change it. It's just that nobody's perfect. And so this is us figuring out each other's like kind of inadequacies or, you know, our own like 
sort of dark spots within ourselves, which are very important for people to encounter. And so when I'm saying that when I talked about my mental challenges, it was not in a forum that was really equipped to do anything about it. So when I was rejected, I kept going on my own. So I would encourage people to really evaluate appropriate forums. I see this a lot with young kids who talk with their mental and talk about their mental and emotional health with their friends and their friends internalize it. And their friends may be like a very empathetic solver type person, but really not equipped to do what is necessary for that individual. There's an entire industry of people who are trained to address mental and emotional health challenges. So I would just encourage you as quickly as possible to find that appropriate forum, school counselor, mental health professional, suicide hotline, warm line, our app. I mean, that's, that's the reason we created Avalo is so that people could go online and share in a non-judgmental way what they're going through. That's void of you know, my relationship to my son or my relationship to my girlfriend or my relationship to, you know, my best friend. It's so important to send this message into a place where it can be received, as you said, non-judgmentally, because people are really not prepared all of the time. And you can't expect other people to know what to do if you're not, you know, talking about it in the places that are really built to talk about it. So I just really encourage you that if you've had a bad experience telling somebody about your mental and emotional health, or maybe you haven't told anybody, go to those places, go to the nonprofits, go to the school resources, look at mental health professionals in your insurance company, look online. I mean, try and find those places that are asking for, that are giving you the signs that this is the place for that message. Yes. I want to hear more about the app. (laughs) Yeah, the app is an anonymous messaging app for peers and professionals to chat about mental and emotional health. Uh, You can download it at avalo.app online or just search Avalo on the Play or App Store. The idea is we're bringing together peers and professionals in an anonymous and non-judgmental way to chat about mental and emotional health. No strings attached, just a free place to open up and experiment with talking about what you're going through with compassionate peers in a place that is really designed to be that receiver of information. It's designed to protect the user. It's designed to be supportive. And it's not designed to solve the problems for you, but it's it's that experimental place for you because a lot of times I didn't have the words yes. to even say, I feel bad. Yes. So now you can practice in being like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I mean, I I used to call it emotional vomiting because Mm -hmm. in the beginning of talking about your mental and emotional health issues, you're really just dumping a bunch of kind of senseless emotions out that probably aren't well articulated and formulated. And there's no shame in that. But it's very challenging to take that type of speak or whatever and go to a therapist, go to a counselor. So this is a place where you can just kind of get it out and work through it yourself. How do you protect the people that come like that from really bad people out there that really take advantage of mental illness? Unfortunately, the world is full of them. There are. um, And we have the ability to block users, flag content. Uh, We have content review teams that make sure that what's shared on the platform is appropriate. 
And luckily, there's a self-policing component of the application as well, because everything is public. So we know when something is flagged as inappropriate very quickly, because we don't have any one-to-one messaging capabilities, which is where a lot of bullying happens because there's nobody else watching. So there's no DMing. It's just, it's like a Facebook group and there's no private talking. Everybody's on in the conversation. Exactly. Can one respond? So how do I know what, is there different conversations going on? How does it work? So you open Mm -hmm. a conversation and say, okay, today, today I'm feeling really dark. I don't want to get out of bed. Yep. And then individual people can respond to you and you can talk with each one of them on the platform. But all of that. The chat is, is, is visible for everyone. Yep. For everyone. Wow. And how do you know if it's a mental health professional or not? Yep. The mental health professionals have identified profiles where they can link to their practice or their email or what, or their uh, phone number, because we want people to see where these mental and emotional health professionals work so that if they want to go seek services, they can. So if you're a mental health professional, you can have an identified profile, but all other mobile app users, it's a hundred percent anonymous. And do you vet the professionals to know that they're really equipped for this? We ask for licensure information. We haven't instituted a certification process yet, but that is very much in the process. Did you create this app on your own? I did. Because you felt that you wish you had that. Exactly. Wow. Is there anything else out there like this? Not currently. How many years? I'd never heard of it. How many years is this? Is this something new? It's new. I've been in the digital space for like three to four years working on this problem. And we released this application about two months ago. So we're very new and it's a very exciting time for us. Very, very. This is awesome. Is there different topics on the app? Like you could say depression, anxiety, panic attacks, suicide We do not sort the content yet, but we're working on algorithms that are going to do that sorting and parsing of content. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. How many people are working on this with you? About 10. Wow. Do you need, can we ask anybody that's listening if they want to help? Like, do you need any help or you don't need help? Oh, we need help. Go to avalo.app in the contact us section and let us know. We'd love to, or get at us on the socials at Avalo app, all one word. Are you on Instagram and Facebook? I am. Well, Avalo at Avalo app on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or my personal is ads Moen. That's A-D-S-M-O-E-N. Fabulous. That's so, what a, what a beautiful platform. And I love the fact that you're flagging inappropriate conversations because so many people find these platforms and unfortunately the people that are struggling are victims and it's, it's so dangerous. So I am grateful for your app. That's fabulous. And if any of our listeners want to help this beautiful app, Download it, share it, talk, t- test it, share it, give thumbs up. You can help. You can help. You can help. You know, if you want to just say thank you to Adam, that's a simple way of having gratitude. We speak about gratitude a lot, Adam. One of our biggest 
conversation, a big, every Thursday we used to have an episode at 50 something episodes on gratitude and how gratitude helps with mental health. You said you started working with mindset and gratitude and it's a huge, huge thing. So sometimes you feel like, how do I give back to the mental health community? This is how, this is how, and you might save lives. If somebody else uses it, you may save their life. So, so it's so simple. It's sometimes gratitude is so simple. It's a few clicks away. It does nothing for you. Like it doesn't take anything from you, but a little bit of giving of your time and a few button, like moving of your fingers. So, wow, Adam, thank you for that. Adam, before we go, I want to ask you, as someone that struggled with suicide thoughts, did you ever have a real attempt? In that TED talk, I I talk in greater detail about it, the choice of suicide and apple cores. But um, I mean, I, I used to stand on the bridge and like try to jump over actively, but my body would freeze. Like my legs wouldn't jump over, but I would sit there and for seconds I would scream at, in my head, jump over. Nobody wants you. Just do it. Just do it. And I never did actually swing my legs over the edge, but I don't know. I mean, I was, I was as close as I think you could ever be to doing it without doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know what I'm talking about there, but that was, uh, yeah, this was, this was multiple times a multiple times a week we're talking. So someone that really struggled with suicide thoughts and, and trying to, to proceed with suicide. What is the definition of hope for you, for someone that wants to take away hope by ending life? That is a great question. What is the definition of hope for somebody who wants to end life? For me, hope is the chance that you could be wrong. We get suicide becomes an answer. Suicide becomes my way out. Suicide becomes my permanent solution to a potentially temporary problem. And hope for me is the idea that, well, maybe I can actually do this without suicide. Hope for me is that shred of doubt that suicide might not resolve the issue. Hope is the chance that I can do this without suicide. I mean, nothing is certain. Um, So I think allowing ourselves to admit that even though a seemingly certain solution like suicide seems infallible, it may not be. And if that's the case, what are you willing to bet on then? Are, are you willing to just throw in the towel then? Or, or are you willing to challenge yourself with betting on that idea of hope? And that's what you know, I would really advocate for people. And they don't, if they don't feel capable to bet on the idea of hope, get somebody in your corner, get somebody on your side, talk to somebody, get some new tools, you know, build new relationships, work on equipping yourself so that you can feel confident betting on hope and you can feel confident moving in the direction of hope. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for being the male that shares his suicide story because we have to, we have a long, long road with the male stigma with mental health. So I appreciate your vulnerability, your desire to help others you finding your own meaning through giving to others what you wished you had. And I really appreciate that you reached out to us at Hope to Recharge. And I can't wait to see where this new app goes to and how many, 
how many people are are finding support, the support that you speak of, and that, and it could be when they're going through that suicidal thought, just to go there and say, I'm thinking of suicide, or that's it, I'm, I'm taking my life, and somebody will hop on there, because sometimes we're like, we don't want to tell anybody, because they're going to judge us, so go to somewhere anonymous that you can, sometimes just saying it is healing, it's really healing. So thank you for creating that platform. Thank you for joining me here today. Guys, share the app, download the app, tell us how it is. Share with us what you think about it. Share with Adam. There's the contact us on his platform. Go share with him if you think that something could be better. I'm sure they're open. They're in the beginning. They're open to hearing. And any tip can help. So, and if you know anybody that's struggling with suicide thoughts or sadness, or maybe, maybe struggling with suicide thoughts and you're not sure, share this episode with them. You might just save a life. Thanks for being with us. Yes, Adam, do you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to thank you, Montana, for the opportunity. I really appreciate being able to come on here and share my story. And, you know, I appreciate what you're doing for the world and for your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. So everybody, bye till next time. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.